Mark chapter 10, verse 13, that's where we're going to start this morning. Uh, early in mine and Melissa's marriage, um, we learned things together about laundry. Uh, we covered a lot of things in our premarital counseling. What we didn't cover was what kind of laundry products we would use. And uh, unbeknownst to me, we used different types of products. Uh, and so I was uh, a, a dryer sheet man, uh, but she was not. And so newly married, I, I go to help with laundry, and I look, and see, there's just all these liquids, but no dryer sheets. And so finally, after about a week or so, I told her, I was like, hey, um, will you buy some dryer sheets, some fabric softener sheets? And she said, we have fabric softener. And I said, what are you talking about? No, we don't. She goes, yeah, you see this liquid here? This is fabric softener. And I said, I did not know this. I thought it was detergent. And so for like a week, I did our laundry with only fabric softener. So our clothes were incredibly soft and terribly filthy. <laughs> it was a really sad deal. Um, I, I thought I had it now. When we think wrong, we draw wrong conclusions. There can be disastrous results. Uh, our brief introduction to laundry life together was an example of where my wrong thinking led to a wrong conclusion, led to disastrous results. Many areas of life where thinking, conclusions, consequences come into play. And chief among those is the way we think about our salvation. When I use the word salvation today, here's what I'm talking about. I'm referring to the way in which our sin against God is forgiven and we are given eternal life. That's what I mean by salvation. And eternal life, salvation, is not a DIY matter. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure if we think wrong on this matter, and if we conclude wrong on this matter, the results are disastrous. You have to get this right. And in our passage today, Jesus seeks to reverse erroneous thinking about salvation in his disciples, as well as in a person we've come to know in church life as the rich young ruler. And so the purpose of my sermon today is the same as the purpose of this passage. This passage targets our thinking about salvation. It exposes errors we believe about salvation, and it corrects them. It doesn't just say you're wrong. Jesus says this is wrong, but this is right. This is the correction. This is how you need to think. And you understand, right, why this correction is so important, because we can't afford to get this wrong. What you believe matters. Does it make you some weirdo fundamentalist or some strange dogmatist to say, I, I want to believe right? We better believe right on the matter of eternal life. We cannot get it wrong. And Jesus loves you so much that this morning he's going to tell you clearly the path to eternal life. So I want to show you in our passage this morning uh, four ways that Jesus changes or reverses our thinking about salvation. And if you will listen to what Jesus says, and if you will believe it and act on it, then eternal life is yours even today. I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. 
When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. You can easily break this passage up into four different sections. That's going to guide our time in the text today. And in each section, Jesus gives us a reversal of thinking. We have come at salvation and eternal life with one line of thought. Jesus flips it all together. And I'll give you a little secret in this passage. Jesus isn't really talking about four different things. He's talking about one thing. He's just talking about eternal life and making sure we get this right. So if you're taking notes this morning, I'd encourage that. Uh, The first reversal of thinking that Jesus brings to us is we've got to change from being an adult to being like a child. From thinking that salvation requires us to be an adult to understanding it requires us to be childlike. So this scene with Jesus and the disciples and the children is really a fascinating scene. Uh, Jesus is continuing his journey towards Jerusalem. Right? He has the cross in view. He's headed towards Jerusalem, uh, and the time of his death is coming soon. And while he's on this journey, people bring their children to him for Jesus to touch and to bless them. Now, this is not an uncommon thing at all. It was common among popular rabbis that people would bring their children for a blessing. Uh, And so uh, we know how popular Jesus is. I mean, uh, chapter 1 of Mark, and we see his popularity building. And in every location, people know Jesus. They think of him as a a wonderful miracle worker, a powerful teacher. And so they bring their children for a blessing. And, And here's what we know about Jesus. 
He loves kids. We see this when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, when he heals the boy who is possessed by a, a demon. Uh, and then in chapter 9, verse 37, just a couple of weeks ago, we heard Jesus tell his disciples, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Jesus loves children. And so what do Jesus' disciples do whenever these parents are bringing their children to Jesus? Well, they act the fool. They try to put a stop to it. What are you doing? Leave him alone. Get those kids away. What are you doing? Whatever. And why would they do that? Mark doesn't give us an answer. Maybe they're motivated by trying to protect Jesus' time. Uh, He only has so much energy. You didn't schedule an appointment, so take your kid away. Come back another time, perhaps. I, I don't know what their motivation is. All I know is that Jesus is not having it. Look at verse 14. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The disciples have rebuked the parents and now Jesus rebukes the rebukers. The disciples have not learned the lesson of chapter 9 of the value of children or the teaching of Jesus that said, don't cause them to stumble in sin. Don't keep them away from me. So Jesus is indignant. I love that word in the translation we read this morning. It's a far cry from gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus also gets angry at injustice, at sinful action and behavior against those who are innocent. Now, why do you think it is that Jesus wants those children nearby. Well, I want you to listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 15. Look at it. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So he tells his disciples that these children are effectively object lessons about the kind of faith by which a person gains entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus says that anyone who's going to enter eternal life has to have a childlike faith. They've got to be like a kid, not like a grown-up. And so what does childlike faith look like? Well, perhaps it would be helpful if we first described what Jesus is not talking about. He's not talking about the innocence of children or the purity of children. Because I've got a newsflash for you. Children are not innocent nor pure. That may seem harsh. I've got an open mic right here if anyone wants to come and testify today. Like I, we love our kids. They bring us such joy and happiness. But, but we don't have to, they don't have to be taught how to lie, how to be defiant, how to fight back. We don't have to teach them that. They just come hardwired that way. So Jesus isn't talking about innocence and purity. That's not what he means when he describes a childlike faith. Those with a childlike faith are those, rather, who are lowly and dependent on God. In, in what ways are children a pattern? Well, in their humble dependence on others, in their receptivity, their acceptance of themselves and their position in life. A child enjoys a lot but can explain very little. Children live by faith. By faith, they accept their lot in life and trust others to care for them and to see them through. That's what a childlike faith looks like. And that's how we enter God's kingdom as well. We enter like children, helpless, unable to save ourselves, totally dependent on the mercy and grace of God to rescue us from our sin. 
We enjoy His kingdom by faith. We come lowly and dependent on Him. And what does a child do when that child is hurt or has a problem? That child runs to their mother or their father. What an incredible example for us to follow in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Jesus doesn't tell you to be strong enough or big enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. He tells you, be childlike. You cannot come as Mr. Big Shot or Miss Big Shot and expect that to get you sway with the King of glory. We come low and humble, fully dependent on the God of our salvation. You've got to reverse your thinking on this matter. You have to come like a child or you cannot come at all. There's another way Jesus challenges our thinking as it pertains to salvation here. First, He tells us we're going to change from being adults to being childlike. Second, He's going to challenge us to change our thinking from having everything to having one thing. From holding on to everything we have to just pursuing one thing with all of our life. So, after this episode with the children, Jesus is next approached by an important man. And we know a few things about this man that we call the rich young ruler. Uh, we know that he is rich. We know that he is young. We know that he has position and influence in society. He's also a very moral man, very religious, very serious about his faith. Oftentimes in Mark's gospel, when people of influence approach Jesus, they do so to test him. They're there for a challenge. They want to embarrass Jesus or find a reason to accuse him. I don't think that's the case with this guy, though. I think his question of Jesus is a sincere question. Uh, I, I don't think he's coming to try and expose Jesus in some way or, or, or anything like that. I think he really wants an answer to this question. And so he approaches Jesus, he runs up to him, and he falls on his knees before him. These are things that an honorable, respectable man would not do. You would not get on your knees before anyone else. You certainly wouldn't run. You would just leisurely stroll and uh, stand in the position of your authority. But he comes before Jesus, gets on his knees, and he calls Jesus good teacher. Verse 17, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus' response is interesting, and it may make you feel a little squeamish at first. Verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So if you read this incorrectly, what it seems like is that Jesus is saying, I'm not good because I'm not God. Only God is good, and I'm not God. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's trying to help this guy understand exactly what he is saying. Jesus doesn't deny that he's good, but rather he's helping this guy understand the implications of what he's just said. No one is good but God alone. Do you understand what you've said to me? Now, I don't think the young man understands fully the weight of all of that, but Jesus doesn't deny it. He's exactly right. No one's good but God alone. Jesus is our good God. In verse 17, the man asks his key question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever wondered, God, what do I got to do to be saved? What do I got to do to get my sin taken care of? Or what do I got to do to get to heaven one day? It's a common question. It's a common thought for people who have a, a bit of an understanding that there is a God, and especially those who have some understanding of the God of the Bible. What do I have to do to be saved? Well, this man asks a common question, but he asks it in a way that exposes his predispositions. He asks, what must I do? 
This is not a question about a childlike faith. This is a question about coming to Jesus like an adult. What must I do? Because that's what adults do. We do things. We go to work. We pay the bills. We build our little empires. We, we do the thing. So that's the grown-up question. What must I do in order to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers the man in verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So Jesus takes the young man to the law of Moses, and he repeats some of the commands of God's people, or that God's people are to keep. So here's a question you might ask. This, you know, this seems kind of weird on Jesus' part. Is it true that if a person were to keep all the commandments of God, that they could be saved? Well, yeah, absolutely. If you can keep the law of God sinlessly, perfectly without breaking it in any way in any tiny measure if you could do that you wouldn't need a savior who died in your place for your sin you'd be your own savior but guess what you've already lost already failed at this even even if you say i'm going to start today living in perfect obedience to the law of god you've got a lifetime of mess-ups that you cannot atone for on your own Jesus is exposing the sin in this guy who answers him and says, I, I've kept all the commandments since I was a boy. He's mistaken. He has not lived a sinlessly perfect life. He needs a childlike faith, but instead he's a self-righteous sinner. Verse 21, I think, is so beautiful, such an important detail. Jesus looked at him and loved him. You remember how Jesus was with his dim-witted disciples just a moment ago? Indignant. <laughs> but in this moment with this guy, Jesus has great compassion for him. You know, Jesus says a lot of hard things about people with wealth. And this passage, of course, is an example, and it's going to get a little more uncomfortable before we're done this morning for sure. Um, but don't forget that Jesus is compassionate for the wealthy lost. I think there's a reason that Jesus speaks with such clarity and directness about the hardship of wealth. He loves those people and he desires for them to be set free from the lies of their possessions. So Jesus exposes this man's heart. In verse 21, he tells him, Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So this young man believes that he has kept God's law since he was a boy. However, in his success, he has violated commandment number one and commandment number two of the Ten Commandments. The most basic of all. Number one, I am the Lord your God. Number two, you shall have no other gods before me. And this man's wealth is his God. His self-testimony is, I've kept the law forever. The evidence of his life is he has a God. It is not Yahweh. It is a God with a little g, the God of his coins and his dollars. That's his God. So what are we to do with Jesus' instructions here? When he tells the man, go sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Is Jesus giving a universal command to be followed by all of his 
all of his disciples? Are we all expected to divest ourselves of all of our worldly goods in order to be followers of Jesus? I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here, not at all. He's dealing directly with this one man and the issues of his one heart. Uh, And Jesus encounters other people of influence and power and accumulation throughout his earthly ministry. And he doesn't lay this same requirement in terms of wealth management on top of every person he encounters. Living in willful poverty doesn't automatically make you holy any more than being wealthy automatically makes you a wicked sinner. So can those who are lost and wealthy be saved? Absolutely they can. They can be saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. That's the good news, but listen up. You better be ready for everything in your life to fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That means you have to steward your resources in a way that's obedient to God and brings glory to God. So Jesus hasn't given us a universal command that we should live in this self-imposed poverty. However, before we wipe our brow and move quickly past this hard saying from Jesus, we need to sit with it for a while. What would you tell Jesus he cannot have? What's the thing? Who's the person that you would tell Jesus, I will follow you, but only if I can hold on to this. That's your God. With a lowercase g, that thing, that person, that's your God. And let me tell you, people and money make for lousy gods. You weren't created for them. You were created for one, the God who made you, who breathed life into you, the God who has a plan for your life before you even existed. You were made for him. You're not created for these other things or even other people. And why would we be surprised at this? This is not anything new from the mouth of Jesus, certainly not in our study of Mark's gospel. Jesus has already told us, if anyone's going to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Look, he really means that. Matthew 16, 33, seek first the kingdom of God. He really means that. This is the way to life. He's not shackling us with burden and hardship. He is setting us free that we would know eternal life, that we would know the hope and the power and the glory and the grace of God, that we would relinquish our hold on all these lesser gods. And if you think this is just a problem for those who have a lot of accumulation or a lot of wealth, listen, human beings are very adept at making gods out of such tiny piles of money. We don't need a lot for our hearts to be swayed. So Jesus just puts the pressure on everyone who hears his word this morning. He calls us to examine our hearts and our lives. Have we given everything? Have we trusted him with everything? Too many of us assume that salvation is a merit-based transaction. That if we do these good deeds or because of our good intentions, then it will ingratiate God to us and then we think, well, surely God will do us well at the end of our lives because of these things I've done. Just fill in the blank. He'll do me well because I'm a veteran, because I'm a, a good parent, because I pay my bills, 
I'm a faithful employee. I'm a spiritual. I'm a religious person. I'm a moral person. Surely these are reasons God would do me well. But friend, if you think that way, you think like this rich young ruler, and you can never be saved that way. Never. You will get to God with all your wealth or all your things, whatever the stuff is you've held on to, you'll present it to him and it will be utterly ineffective in saving you. But there is a way to be saved, to let go of all of that, to cling to Jesus Christ, to let him be the one who rescues you from your sin. You've got to give up everything for the one thing. You've got to let it go in order to embrace and hold Jesus Christ. So we are changing our thinking from thinking like adults to being childlike, from having everything to having one thing. Third reversal Jesus brings to the way we think is from salvation earned to salvation given. From salvation earned to salvation given. The rich young ruler walks away sad. He's the only person in the Gospel of Mark who approaches Jesus in sincerity and walks away sad. But Jesus isn't done with his instruction, so he turns to his disciples and he ratchets up the tension even more. Look at verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Why were they amazed at Jesus' words? Well, it's because in this culture, they believed that wealth was a sign of God's favor. So here we have a a guy who is wealthy, a guy who is uh, moral, a guy who says he's kept the law, uh, and Jesus says, this is a hard deal. Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the, the visual of a camel trying to pass through the eye of a needle uh, is something that I would call hyperbole, not hyperbole. Here's what I mean. It's hyperbole in the sense that this word picture is, is an absurd visual. Camel is the largest animal in Israel. Uh, I have a needle, tiny little opening. There's some sort of colloquial thinking that there was a gate to the city of Jerusalem called the eye of a needle because it was small and camels had to get on their knees to crawl through it. There's no historical evidence that this is true. It just, it makes for, I don't know what it makes for. It's just not very accurate. Here's the deal. Jesus is talking about a sewing needle and a camel. That's what he's talking about. And it's hyperbole and that a camel can never pass through the eye of a sewing needle. That's right. Here's how it's not hyperbole. The person who trusts in their wealth will never enter the kingdom of God. The person who makes those things, their possessions, their accomplishments, their God, they will never enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed They said to each other, who then can be saved? Aren't you glad that the disciples ask the questions we think? Aren't you glad that they also struggle with these things? They're with Jesus all day, every day, and they're, they're working hard to understand, and they're not always getting there. That's good news for you and I. The disciples ask a good question. It reveals their continued misunderstanding of the nature of salvation If this young guy with wealth and morality can't be saved, then who can be saved? And the answer is, what's impossible with man is possible with God. 
I can't save myself. You cannot save yourself. Not through morality, not through uh, the acclaim of the world, not through the possessions of nations. Those things cannot save. You've got to beat that into your head. They cannot save. Only by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is anyone saved. And that's the good news. Salvation is not earned by moral people or by wealthy people or by good people. Salvation is given by God to sinners who trust in Him. It's not earned, it's given. Uh, If you're new to us, you uh, you may not know that uh, my wife and I have four daughters, two of whom are adopted, two of whom are biological. And one time a person said to us, it's nice that you've adopted, but isn't it great that you also have your own children too? That's a special brand of stupid. One, to think that way. Two, for those words to come out of your mouth. Give me a break. As if to say that our biological children are somehow more fulfilling, more satisfying, more us than our adopted children. It's just dumb. See, when we, when we adopted our two daughters, we gave them the last name Busby. We didn't give them half the last name. We didn't say, you get the buzz, and we'll see how things work out. Later on, we'll give you the B. <laughs> right? They're not daughters light. They're not daughters secondary. All four daughters are my daughters, and everything I have belongs to them. They don't have to earn my love. In fact, they can't earn my love. It is given to them. Because I am their father and they are my girls. I give my love freely and fully because they're my children. How weird would it be if tomorrow your kid came to you and said, Mommy, if I'm a good boy, could I have shoes today? What? How weird would that be if that was the way you related to your kid? I don't know why your child would talk that way, but how weird if they had some sort of a merit-based relationship with you. If I promise not to be bad, can I eat food and drink water today? Well, no, you don't have to set it up that way. Your relationship with them is not merit-based. Now, you discipline and all that. That's true. That's all right. That's not contrary to the picture the Gospels portray here for us. But your love for them is not something they earn. It's something you give. That's how it is with us and our Heavenly Father. You don't earn that salvation. He gives that salvation because he loves you so much. Loves you enough to tell you, don't trust in these little things. Don't let your heart be lied to to the degree that you would attach yourself to these lesser things. I want to give you the best. I love you freely, fully, so much. I have salvation for you. Salvation is not earned. Salvation is given. One last change in our thinking that Jesus pushes towards is from being first to being last. Peter, never one to let a moment remain quiet. So he feels compelled to remind Jesus what he and the other disciples have left for him. And Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for this. It may seem a little weird, and maybe, maybe I just read Peter with a bit of a negative filter sometimes. But Jesus doesn't uh, push back on him for, for mentioning these things that they've left. 
Rather, Jesus speaks comfort to Peter and the disciples. Verse 29, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel. What's the, what's the motivation? It's for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus has said to the rich young ruler, sell everything, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. The economics of the transaction, as if that would be a motivator, are such that he has lost nothing. He has gained everything. Everything. In what way, in the present age, if we relinquish these things, our hold on these things, in what way in the present age does Jesus fulfill us? In what way are these things brought back to us? Here's an example of what I think Jesus is talking about. One example. When a bad husband turns to Jesus by faith, he comes to Jesus for the sake of Jesus, and he relinquishes all of his little gods, his ego, his money, his appetites, then and only then is he able to love his wife and serve her in a way that leads to a lifelong happy marriage. If you weren't with us last week, you need to go listen to last week's sermon about marriage. That's, so he relinquishes, the bad husband relinquishes control, hold over all these things. He embraces Christ fully with his whole life. And what does he get in return? He gets his wife in a marriage like he's never had before. And it's a lifelong happy one at that. I think that is one example of what Jesus is talking about here. Here's another example. For many people who were the original audience of Mark's gospel, and also for many people here, a choice to follow Christ by faith is a choice that may ostracize you from your family. I've had this conversation more than once with people in our church who are they're, they're hearing the gospel for the first time. They, they come from a religious background, but it was very works-based and very superstitious in its approach to God. And what they've said is, if I do this, if, if I give my life to Christ, mom and dad won't understand. I understand how hard that is. There's a re very real cost involved in following Jesus Christ. But when you say yes to Christ, then you have in your local church brothers and sisters and spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. That's why we call ourselves a family. Not intended to take the place of your blood relatives in some sort of kooky compound cult way. That's not the thing. The thing is this, you're, you're not left alone. You have brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers on your side. And so Jesus concludes in verse 31, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The wealthy and powerful elite who do not trust in Jesus will have a brief and miserable run in this life. And then they will face the wrath of God for their sin, as anyone will when they approach God without the covering of the righteousness of Christ. 
Whereas those who hold loosely to earthly attachments entrust Jesus with their lives entirely, those people will enter the kingdom of God for all eternity in the age to come in eternal, unimaginable glory. So Jesus is challenging our thinking this morning. We have to make some serious reversals in the way we think about salvation. We have to go from being adults to trusting Christ in a childlike way. We have to go from holding on to all of our things to letting them go and instead clinging to one thing, Jesus Christ. We have to go from thinking salvation is earned to knowing salvation is given by our Heavenly Father who loves us so much. And finally, we've got to go from trying to be first to knowing that salvation is for those who are last. So if someone were to ask you the question the young man asked of Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the answer. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do. It's all been done by Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, who lived sinless and perfect as God does. And then he laid down his life. The price that your sin requires is paid by Christ at the cross, that's why he died. He died in your place for your sin so that you wouldn't have to. He did the doing of salvation in his death and then three days later, his resurrection. And he promises if you will trust in him, his righteousness becomes your righteousness. His holiness becomes your holiness. Eternal life is yours for eternity. And it's incredible. Popular pastor and writer Tim Keller says this, the heart of the gospel is all about giving up power, pouring out resources, and serving. The center of Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, I want you to imagine life without money, and all you have is me. Am I really enough? Do you truly believe that the person who has Jesus and nothing else actually has everything. That's the question Jesus puts before this man. It's the same question he puts before us little children. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us. I, just, I thank you for the hardness of it. Our hearts need it today. When I say it's a hard word, I mean it really presses in conviction in areas of our lives that we are really sensitive about. Thank you for loving us enough for not just fluffing us up all the time, but for leading us in the way of life everlasting. So God, this morning, Holy Spirit, Awaken faith in my friends here today. Lead them away from all these lesser gods. Draw them to you, the one who loves them and gave everything for them. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith in here. Uh, this morning's passage is definitely a lesson for disciples. That we would not forget how we have been saved, but we would pursue the character of those who are saved. And we would live with our lives fully surrendered, fully embracing Jesus Christ and his will. Father, thank you for your good word to us. And for so great a salvation as this, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.